in great pomp and power. But sitting on a donkey, an animal of peace, fit only for burden and labor and help to man. He indicates by this that he comes not to frighten man, nor to drive or crush him, but to help him and carry his burden. To help him and carry his burden is what Luther sees in this scene of this arrival in Jerusalem on a donkey. And if we look back into that blind Bartimaeus scene before it, we'll see what it means for Christ to be one who helps and carries our burdens. But before we get to that, we have this chronological problem, which many people have pointed out to me, is that it's not Palm Sunday. Um, which is fair. There's not much I can say about that. Why are we doing Palm Sunday today, though, I can answer to some degree, which is we've, we've decided to set, at least for a period of time, uh, walking through a gospel all the way from the beginning of the new year all the way up until Easter. And to take that journey, we have to sort of pick scenes from the story to help us appreciate and make that gospel known to us. Now, Palm Sunday fits in, in, in an area in the church calendar that I think has the assumption that, you're, that the people who make up the congregation will be in church almost every night that week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Maudie Thursday, Good Friday. You'd start an Easter vigil late on Holy Saturday and read through Genesis all the way up until some of the Easter resurrections historically. Not the whole thing. You would pick scenes. And then you would celebrate the breaking of the dawn on Easter and celebrate the resurrection together. I would love to live in that world, but that's not the world we live in. And so as you can tell, we're only in the 11th chapter of Mark when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And if we want to walk and look at other scenes in the Gospel of Mark, we have to move sort of Palm Sunday forward some so that we can talk about what happens in 12 through 15 and in the resurrection in 16. Now, if people want to switch it up and and go to church every night during Holy Week and stuff like that and really get into the meaning of what's happening there, I'm game. But in the meantime, I want us to be able to grow an appreciation of of Mark's gospel and the shape that it has and the gift that it is for us so that we can see how Jesus is active in this gospel. So Palm Sunday moves forward. Now in the future, we can can do a Palm Sunday the week before Easter, but it's important to know that like we're trying to get to the shape and the character of how Mark preserved Jesus for us. One of the greatest gifts I got in seminary, and it, and it seems crazy that you would pay 50000 for this gift, but let's not think about it too hard. One of the gifts, greatest gifts I got in seminary was gospel literacy. Was this ability to be able to understand the shape of a gospel, to notice where the movements happen, to where things take us, to how this is put together so that we can get deeper into the character of Jesus. The gospel that that I grew up with, and we talked about this at the start of the series, was very much a mosaic Jesus. It was all the things that Jesus does, um, some of them more than others because we pick and choose, we're human, and we shove them all into the making up this beautiful, beautiful mosaic of who Jesus is for us. I think that is good and deep and true, and I don't want to undercut that for anyone. But I think that there are times... And there are ways in which we should be able to take the, the mosaics, the, the, the uh, what's a mosaic made of? Artists? 
tile. We should be able to take a tile, a single tile, and appreciate the shape of it and what it does and how it fits into the larger picture. But that's sort of the goal of a sermon series like this, is to be able to appreciate one of the tiles, to notice its contours, its colors, and how it brings the story of Jesus out in its own unique way so that it can be brought into the mosaic of Jesus. So that's why we're sort of doing this and why Palm Sunday gets moved forward. There's a little other point that like Palm Sunday is a classic associate pastor Sunday because it's like, oh, senior pastor's got Easter, he's going to prepare, and the associate pastor always gets Palm Sunday. And having preached on Palm Sunday six times, I'm like out of stuff to say. Um, it's, it's hard to come up with a new way to bring Palm Sunday truths to people every week. But there's this one observation I like to share almost every year. And I don't think anybody was born. Was anybody born on April 11th? Oh, we're good. April 11th, 1954. Um, this guy fed all these facts into a machine, into a computer. And April 11th, 1954, he said, was the most boring day of the 20th century. Nobody died. Nobody was, was famous, was born that day. There was no war. There were no bombs. There were no, like, everything about April 11th, 1954 is just, like, meaningless is sort of the point. And it tells you a lot about how the world decides what's a meaningful day. Did anybody die? Did something blow up? Did, um, maybe we should stop deciding what's a meaningful day based off those events. But what I love to point out about this is that April 11th, 1954 was a Palm Sunday. And perhaps, reading those texts, participating in this story, seeing how our king comes as a lonely come, actually entered into the hearts of a thousand or 500 people that day and transformed something about their lives and how they lived. And if that's the case, April 11, 1954, there might have been quite a bit that happened. But it's harder to register in those ways. It's an observation I love. Now, back to the chronology point here on Mark's gospel is David has a sermon ready for the scenes right after this. And it was great that Kelly read scripture this morning because she's the visual uh, representation of why David will be giving that sermon whenever it happens. We figured that next week the baby could be born this week and that next week David would give that sermon that he has ready for the scenes right after this. If by chance the baby goes another week, which is possible, don't tell Kelly that because she's ready for it to come out, um, uh, David will give that sermon a week later. So just keep in mind that like, oh, we're going to go backwards possibly at some point and it'll be backwards so David can, can have prepared. And so I gave him, it was nice, we gave him time to you know, prepare for this and, and to not be like, hey, it's Saturday, the baby came, can you just do whatever tomorrow is? Um, that David has time to be ready for this. Um, and as, as kind of my associate teacher, I didn't stick him with Palm Sunday. Um, but, so <laughs> uh, he would have done a great job on it. Um, but I want to look at the wholeness of these two scenes together. Part of what I think ties them together is that the way that a king is... Um, there was one other important part. Oh, on the gospel literacy point, is that we often think of the Bible as inspired content, which is true. We don't often think of it as inspired form. The form and the shape that it takes is equally inspired. 
We think, oh, Scripture, just pick out a verse, that, that should tell us something that's true and is inspired. But if we look at the shape of these Gospels, they're beautifully crafted. Now, this one in Mark's Gospel, and this is important about today's scene, deals with blindness. The section that started this section of Mark's Gospel back a couple chapters ago also dealt with blindness. And then it's in this section where the disciples are beginning to try and put together how can they see Jesus. It's in this section that Jesus quotes from from Isaiah and says um, uh, that hearing that they won't hear, having ears that they won't hear, and having eyes that they won't see. This whole section sort of has this piece of figuring out who Jesus is. And so it being bracketed by two stories of blindness tells us something. It's about how we can move into seeing who Jesus is. Now, the first healing is the great one that has, and that everybody looked like trees when Jesus first touches him. The revelation dawning on us of who Jesus is, the sight of being able to see that, is one that sort of comes into parts in that scene. He begins to be healed, and then he says, I see things, but everything looks like trees. And Jesus touches him again. He can, he can see again. This is, this is sort of capturing um, the movement into faith there. This story about Bartimaeus, and this is the last healing, the last miracle up to the resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. That the whole thing changes here. But there's this story also about blindness. And this one has this notion of restore my sight. You, if you read really slowly, we talk about that. If you, Bartimaeus, it doesn't say, was blind from birth. It doesn't say that. And there's also this way in which he says, give me my sight back. Restore my sight. If we've been following the disciples through this point, they seem to still be somewhat blind about who Jesus is. And if you didn't have a scene like this, you could be like, that is depressing. But a scene like this says that Jesus can restore our sight so that we can see who he is again. That we can know him and follow him again. That Jesus just doesn't say, well, you've become blind, which he says to the disciples, so you're on your own now. But continues in his healing touch for people. So the shape of this gospel around this section with these two blind men tells us a lot about what does it mean to see correctly. In the ancient world, and in our world too, there's a sense in which blindness contains this notion of dwelling in darkness. And so Jesus, in his healing, brings people from the realm of darkness into the realm of light. Powerful message there. And so there's this thing in the Gospel of Mark that everybody is failing to see who Jesus is. And even when they do, he tells them, don't tell anyone. We haven't talked about it a lot, but one of the things is I've been going through it slowly in my own study. It seems to become apparent that almost that like there's a block on people's inability to name this even when they get close to it. Peter says you are the Christ and then immediately is rebuked by as, as being a Satan in the scene we discussed last week. Get behind me, Satan. It's only until the cross, the centurion at the cross, that somebody is able to cap- capably to voice Truly, this man was God's son. 
There's this sort of blindness that pervades most of the gospel of Mark, that people just can't seem to get it. And I don't think it's um, a blindness that, that we should judge them for. I think it's actually, this isn't capable of being say, say, said or seen until you see where this one goes, you see how this one dies, and you see how this one rises again, that then you can fully voice, truly this was God's son. Truly this one was divine. Now Mark's gospel has this fast ending, if you don't keep the snakes part, which Many of us not in the snake handling are, are grateful to not keep the snake part. That almost throws you back into reading the gospel again. The woman rush ahead to Galilee where he said he'd be. And if it ends there, it should push you back into beginning it again. And so what this gospel of Mark can do is if we reread it and reread it, it helps scales fall off our eyes and light begin to be restored into our world. The second time through, you can begin to see those scenes, again, you can see where Christ shows up as divine. You can see this thing taking root better. And that gospel is sort of meant to be this repetitive thing in which we go deeper into each time. And so that's, that sort of sets up at least where we are in this. But I want to talk about just sort of a couple ways to look at this story. The first is, is if we look at the crowd that's following Jesus. Jesus at this moment is probably being followed by the largest crowd that, that he's gathered in his ministry, and he's, he's leaving Jericho. Now, Jericho is, is 600 feet below sea level. Shelley's bed, that's right, right? And, and Jerusalem is high. It's 2,000 feet above sea level, I think. That's what I read, so who knows. And then kilometers and everything like that, you know, you just get messed up with the metric system. But it's high compared to Jericho. And so he's, he's leaving Jericho at this moment and beginning his march towards Jerusalem. So he's got a lot of crowds with him. Now the crowds play an interesting role in Mark because they have this way of being high on Jesus and low on Jesus, turning on Jesus, asking weird questions of Jesus. They're kind of like us. They're kind of like antagonistic. At this moment, they, as he arrives into Jerusalem, they're at his highest and it's not hard to remember that, that towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, they're also at their lowest. Crucify him. Crucify him. But the crowds are following along with Jesus in, in Jericho, and they hear this man yelling out. Um, I want to get the phrasing right. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, had mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's a blind man on the side of the road, and he just keeps yelling this out. Now, if you've been following along in Mark's gospel, this almost seems like the type of person Jesus would say, they're not supposed to know that yet. Like, this should be a secret, right? But that's not what happens. Now, the crowds, for some reason, and I think this is, this is fair for us as well, try to silence the man, if he's been yelling this for a while, I think we would all be like, just shut up already. Let it go, man. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, is his cry. And what the crowds do is they attempt to silence him at first. Now, this shouldn't seem that unique to us in our own spiritual lives, in our own public lives. I've been the person who people say, well, you just shut up with the God stuff already. 
Will you quit calling that out, reminding us of that? And it's funny, I work in the church world. It happens there as much as it happens in the public world, where it's like, yes, of course God could restore us. Yes, of course God. But since he's not going to, we have to make some plans at the moment. It's not to say that we shouldn't plan, but, but you can even get tired of it in the world of the churches to sort of say, okay, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. We all got that, all right? All right, now let's move on and get some real work done because God may not show up. Seems to be the way that we can function. Crowd can silence us in another way, antagonistically as well. They can kind of try to shut us down. But the crowd, um, the second that Jesus shifts his opinion, call him. So they call to the blind man, cheer up. Move from shut up to cheer up. Take heart, be brave is all the different ways you can translate this. They call out to him, he's on your feet, he's calling you. The crowd shifts fast. It shouldn't give us much pause because that's about what's to happen in Jerusalem as well. Another way to, to sort of look at the story is through the lens of Jesus. As I mentioned, he would have been likely to silence somebody who was running around calling him the son of David earlier in his ministry. But it seems now at the moment in which they're close to Jerusalem that this is a truth that can be known. And many of us remember that David was a king, Right? And Jesus is this arrival of a new king. But instead of on a horse of war, he arrives on a donkey. That Jesus is, is, is sort of preparing his arrival as a king. And, what, and Mark has this really lowly way of looking at it. A lot of the details that we, we sort of add into this scene come from the other Gospels. Mark cert- certainly has the lowest sort of way of looking at this arrival in Jerusalem. It's Jesus clearly telling us that you guys know that I'm going to be a king, and that's your expectation of this moment. But I'm not going to be a king like anything you've ever imagined. I'm going to be a different kind of king. We have this, this phrase that sometimes we'll use, that it's, that it's an upside-down kingdom, which I think captures um, some, of, some of what's happening here, is that this whole notion of arriving as a king into a city is turned upside-down. Now, if you arrived into a city in, in sort of ancient society, you would bring your spoils of war with you. As we've talked about Jesus as this one who enters into this sort of eschatological battle, this end times battle, his spoils of war are these people he's healed and touched and called into his way of life on the road, on the way. Bartimaeus being the last of them. He calls him in and brings him on the road into the city. Now, bringing the formerly blind, the lame, in some cases the formerly dead, um, those who had uh, bleeding diseases, this and that, with you as your spoils of war, it's not that, <laughs> not that overwhelming when you'd normally maybe bring like some of the soldiers and the generals and the slaves from the other country. Jesus arrives with these people who he has restored. Jesus arrives with these people who, like, you know, a year ago, three years ago, would have been worthless. The spoils of what God has done in the world through Jesus, that he brings into the city of Jerusalem, are that which we abandoned in the world. 
He's restored them, and they're the ones who follow him in, into this parade into Jerusalem. They're the ones who shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which is a phrase that means save us. Save us now. They call out to be saved at this moment. And so Jesus sees this man and he calls him to him. Now, this is, this is absolutely remarkable. Um, it shocked me this week. Is that he says, what do you want? In the previous chapter, John um, and James... Why am I skipping their names? Um, come to Jesus, and he asks them, what do you want? And they say, well, we want to sit on your right and your left when you come in power. He says, well, you'll, you'll, you'll be given, can you drink the, the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say yes. And he says, yeah, you will, which is you will die too. Um, all the disciples traditionally die horrific deaths as well. But that's not for you. What do you want? It was a question I had to ask myself about, what do I want when I come to Jesus? If Jesus were to ask me, what do you want, how would I respond? If Jesus were to ask you, what do you want, what would you say? I was was like, well, I want to go to heaven. (laughs) Which isn't a great answer I thought about. Um, It's kind of like the, the first disciples' requests. Um, do I want to be healed is another question. Now, I don't know if, if this man appears to be a beggar on the side of the road. I've worked in those places quite a bit, and it's unique that when they meet somebody with power, that they would want to be healed. It's more likely, tell those people to treat us fairly. Tell those people to give me more when they come by. Tell those people I matter. Tell those people that there's something about me that gives me dignity. Tell them that. Now, you may think I'm just picking on them, but here's the truth of the matter. When I think about my life with multiple sclerosis and people are like, do you want to be healed? It's become a lot of an identity at the moment. I mean, yes, obviously, but like on the other side of the coin, like, you know, people people think that you're wiser because you've suffered. You know, do I want to give that up? Um, do people, uh, you know, they have a little bit more sympathy for you. They, they ask you uh, how you're doing. Um, you know, there's, do I really want to be healed of multiple sclerosis? Now, I think a lot of us, when Jesus says, what do you want? If we go to our wounding, if we go to the thing where we need to be healed, I think we might hesitate. I think we'd, we'd say, yes, heal that. But I think we'd be, I don't know. Um, you know, here for me, growing up with a learning disability, at the moment to be able to say, oh, I have a learning disability, can you heal me, wouldn't have been that helpful because then I would have lost a lot of the things that were helping me get through. through. To give that up wouldn't have been easy. Let's say this man has been blind for 10 years, the son of Timaeus, which is what Bartimaeus means. Let's say he's been blind for 10 years. His business is gone. He doesn't have a place he can go. He's could have been abandoned by the side of the road. If he can see all of a sudden, he's got to put his life back together. Bartimaeus, what do you want? I want to be healed. That's a good answer, I think, to the question of what Jesus says when, when Jesus asks us, what do you want? 
I want to be healed. I want to be restored. I want to be brought into your way. Jesus, you notice, is he sets him free at the end of the story. He says, you're free. And then Bartimaeus follows him on the way. It's a story of discipleship. It's a story of baptism. You can imagine the scene in the ancient sort of liturgies of baptism in the church when when somebody would cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the living God, have mercy on me. Jesus, and the the crowd, somebody would say to them, "Um, what do you, uh, you know, they would rebuke him and the person would still say that. They made it hard to get in back then. And so they would call him and they would say, rise, stand up, rise up, stand on your feet. He's calling you. And they would throw their cloak aside, and they would go, and they would say, what do you want? And they would say, I want to be healed. I want to be brought into this way. I want to see again. We talked about the spiritual blindness at the beginning. I want to be brought into this news. I want to be brought into this place. Now, one of the most famous, oldest prayers of the church is the Jesus prayer, which I say to myself often, which is Jesus Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Orthodox will say it with a prayer rope over and over again. Um, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the first time I heard that coming from, you know, uh, well, we can get into that some other time. But I was kind of like, well, that's a little harsh. Um, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But as you pair it with this story, doesn't sound harsh. If you pair it with what Luther says about this arrival in Jerusalem, it sounds like there's somebody there who can take our burdens, be a help to us, and free us into new life. It's not just bad news for us to say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's actually the words that we say for the renewal that God is going to give us. It's the call out in faith that God is going to transform this place in our lives. There's one more observation I want to make about the text, which is that he throws aside his jacket. A blind man throws aside his jacket. That doesn't seem like a wise thing, right? This is going to be hard to find your jacket again if you're blind. Not only that, imagine many of you have been to professional sporting events, right? It's a large crowd of people. Call out to him. He's calling for you. Get up and go to him. He throws aside his jacket. People walking. I think it's fair to say you're never going to get that jacket back. He throws across, especially if you're blind, that's just not going to happen. He throws across the, the thing, and it, it, most people think the jacket was laying over his legs, and it was where people threw change and money as they passed by for him. It's not a jacket he's wearing. He throws off the thing that's empowering him or giving him life in his sickness, right, in his blindness. He throws it off to go to Jesus. Paul says that we should throw off the sin that easily entangles and drags us down. Now, it's, it's going to be about two years since we changed the church's name to Defiance, but I remember I was standing there with a pastor, and I said, oh, we're changing our name to Defiance. And he said, well, you know, Matt, what happens when you're defiant in your spiritual life? 
I was like, uh, I had been preparing for, for things like this, so I was much sharper on my feet than I should have been. Because you know what he means is that, like, well, defiance isn't the way we live with our God, right? We, we move towards him in love. We, we practice with him. We do this. He was like, defiance for the name of a church. You know, that's, that doesn't name who we should be with God, right? And what I said to him, and like I said, I had been thinking about this name for a long time. I said, oh, you mean like if I say no to the powers of the mall, and all the things that want me to be this way in my life. You mean if I defy um, what the internet tells me about my body and who I am? You mean if I defy uh, the NFL and neglecting my kids after church on Sunday? If I defy those things? Is that what you're talking about? He said, oh, you know I didn't mean it that way. He was right. I was just picking on him. But I think there's that truth of that what happens when we come into this place, into the spiritual life, we throw off those things that disable us and keep us from coming into the life that God has for us. We throw off a culture of death that's bent a certain way and move towards life that's found in Jesus. This is the hope of this passage. This is the hope of one who comes into the city not as a proud king, but as one on a donkey, which is a help to man to carry his burdens. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, you come to us in many and various ways and you ask us, what do you want me to do for you? I want power. I want a bigger church. I want people to respect me. I want people to see me. I want to be known. God, the blind man correctly sees that when we come to you, what do you want from us? I want to see. I want to be healed. I want to be set free. And as Jesus speaks these words of being set free, he says, your faith has healed you. And as we receive this healing, it's up to us to follow you along the road, to leave behind what's entangled us, to leave what heim behind what's broken us down, and to move with you to, towards Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. There's all sorts of you know, strings and things that you tie out when you write a sermon, and I forgot that we did confession right after this. Um, confession has that, that sort of powerful moment, and this is new for us, of letting go, of 